if you've succeeded in, in, in uh, allowing the minority of people, not just based off of race, minority of humans, Americans in this country to learn about these things, then you have the support of the majority of Americans who are like, what are they talking about? Race uh, riots and, and massacres and, and state-sponsored executions of people just based off of their race and where they're living and how they're thriving? Oh, that doesn't happen in America. I never heard about that. Yeah. And the majority of people, because we made sure that they didn't learn about that, are, their starting point is, this sounds like a, a fantasy. This never happened. I didn't learn about it. Because we yeah. have this utmost uh, uh, trust in our education system to teach people and teach us the reality of the situation. And if, again, we go back to, hey, if you don't agree with it or if you if push back against what we were taught and how we were taught, you're now an American. Yeah. Not the way we did it was un-American. If you just push back against what is because now you know reality, that's un-American. And it makes people then recoil again and go, well, I don't want to be called un-American. Let me make sure that I just shut up. It's just, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a playbook and it's a tired playbook. And we've seen it a million times, but it still works on so many people. Learn to do what is right. Promote justice. Give the oppressed reason to celebrate. Take up the cause of the orphan. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9, New Living Translation. everybody and welcome to The Breathing Room, a space where people of color and faith can come together to have our lived experiences acknowledged, to witness each other's journey, and to take a collective deep breath. My name is Kevin Holland. This is episode six and the title is Tulsa Wasn't Alone. How 60 years of racial violence in the 20th century led to the disparity, injustice, and inequity we still see today in the 21st. Right here at the beginning, I just want to thank everybody for their enthusiastic support in listening to this podcast. To my knowledge, we've never had something like this in this space in our fellowship of churches, in our faith community. It's uncomfortable, it's bracing, but hopefully it's empowering and will lead us to taking action. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to my friend and we were both saying how we were still in a state of shock over all that's happened over the past few years. I think we're all in the same boat there. This podcast represents trying to wrap our heads around how we got here, where we are, and how do we take positive steps forward, share the love of God, be a refuge for all those who are hurting, and be a good Samaritan society and a prophetic community and the kind of church that Jesus would want us to be. It makes sense to me that before we try to move forward with any direct action, we spend some time educating ourselves to some uncomfortable realities that have been hidden for decades. Only if we understand our history will we have the best grasp on our present and see clearly how to take steps of positive direct action to help our world be more just and in doing so honor our Heavenly Father. As I did during last week's episode, I want to read a bracing article about the other race massacres that occurred in the 20th century that we weren't taught about. 
I'll make some brief comments at the end, but just know that there is a purpose in us studying this painful history. And that as we listen, as we learn and lament, as Latasha Morrison teaches, we'll be able to leverage all that God has done in us to make positive change. What I saw was bad enough, and yet I cannot tell all that I saw. Mary E. Joseph Parrish. On May 31, 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma became the site of a horrific massacre that was shrouded in silence for decades. A white mob descended on the city's prosperous black enclave of Greenwood and proceeded to burn, loot, and kill until scores were dead and 35 city blocks were destroyed. 100 years later, Tulsa is still reckoning with its violent history. As it does, Americans across the country face another truth. Tulsa wasn't alone. Between the end of the Civil War and the 1940s, the destruction seen in Tulsa happened in various ways to communities of color across the country. These acts of racial violence took aim at the roots of generational wealth, shaping the nation and its inequities in ways we still see today. Burned from the Land, How 60 Years of Racial Violence Shaped America by Shannon Hodge, Brianna Hare, Tammy Luby, Elias Godstein, Priya Krishnukumar, Nadia Lancey, Toby Lyles, Amy Roberts, and Clint Alwahab, all of CNN, published May 30th, 2021. As the Civil War neared its end, Union General William Sherman had been convinced that the newly emancipated slaves needed their own land to secure their freedom. He issued Special Field Order Number 15, setting aside 400,000 coastal acres of land for black families and stating that no white person whatever, unless military officers and soldiers detailed for duty, will be permitted to reside. A provision was added later for mules. In three months, the potential of Sherman's order vanished with a single shot. That April, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, and in the fall, President Andrew Johnson reversed Sherman's order, allowing Confederate planners to regain the land. It demonstrated a ruthless appropriation that would be repeated for decades to come. Still, black Americans created pockets of wealth during the Reconstruction years and into the early 20th century. Yet where black Americans created a refuge, white Americans pushed back through political maneuvering and violence. This year marks the centennial of one such event, the heinous attack on the black enclave of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A glistening city within a city, Greenwood was home to grocery and retail stores, theaters, restaurants, and hotels, all the businesses and services that would cater to black residents of a segregated state. Greenwood streets were lined with the stately mansions of doctors and business tycoons, as well as the more modest dwellings of domestic workers. It was so prosperous, it became known as Negro Wall Street. The affluence of Greenwood created this tie-in between black Tulsans and white Tulsans, says University of Tulsa anthropologist Alicia Odowale in CNN Films' Dreamland, The Burning of Black Wall Street. But it's all about perspective. White Tulsans talked about Greenwood as Little Africa or Niggerland. 100 years later, on May 31, 1921, that racial animosity became fuel for a massacre. A lynch mob formed in downtown Tulsa after a 19-year-old black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. That night, thousands of white Tulsans launched an all-out assault on Greenwood with rifles, machine guns, torches, and aerial bombings from private planes. The rampage lasted into the next afternoon, leaving 10,000 black Tulsans homeless and their community burned to nothing but ash and rubble. It's still unknown how many people were killed, but it's estimated 
estimated as many as 300 lost their lives in the massacre. It was one of the worst acts of racial violence in American history. We estimate that there were upwards of 100 massacres that took place between the end of the Civil War and the 1940s, says William Doherty Jr., a Duke University economist who co-authored From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, with writer and folklorist A. Kirsten Mullen. They take place north and south, east and west. We looked back through research and news clippings, paying particular attention to around 50 racially charged incidents between 1863 and 1923 when people of color lost property or economic opportunity. These events highlighted here reveal how acts of racial violence of different scope played out across the country and targeted various ethnicities. Historians then helped us examine how and why they had occurred and where we still see the impact today. The South lost the Civil War. The South's response to that loss was that it was going to win the race war. Detroit, Michigan, March 6, 1863. On March 6, 1863, a tavern owner named William Faulkner was found guilty of sexually assaulting a white girl. Outside the courthouse, a mostly white crowd clashed with officials as they tried to get at Faulkner. When they couldn't, they roamed Detroit streets attacking African Americans and setting buildings on fire, which left nearly 200 black residents homeless. Local papers had called Faulkner a Negro, though Faulkner said he was Spanish Indian. Faulkner's accusers later recanted and he was released from prison, as noted in research, by the late Matthew Kundinger when he was a University of Michigan history student. 1875, Clinton, Mississippi. On September 4th, 1875, between 1,500 and 2,500 people, most of whom were newly enfranchised black Republicans and their families gathered at the site of a former plantation for a picnic and political rally ahead of an election. A white Democrat who had been invited to the event heckled the speaker inciting a fight. Witnesses said that the white Democrats turned their weapons on the crowd and started firing. In the days after, a presumed race riot became a massacre. The achievements of black America made them vulnerable to attack, says Trina Shanks, a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute. If blacks were successful and actually were visibly prosperous, that made them a target. Some of the violence might have been triggered by this economic envy, says Shanks, director of community engagement at the University of Michigan's School of Social Work. She explains that some white Americans thought, how can we make sure that we reserve these economic benefits and opportunities for the white population and our children and push blacks out so that there can be more for us? This dynamic played out in Wilmington to North Carolina, where many black Americans achieved economic success for several decades in the late 1800s. They worked throughout the major port city as professionals, skilled artisans, and industrial workers. They formed a building and loan association, built libraries, and created baseball leagues. During the 1870s and 1880s, some black businessmen and entrepreneurs amassed wealth rivaling that of many whites, according to a 2006 historical report produced by the 1898 Wilmington Race Riot Commission, which was created by the state's General Assembly. They were gaining political power, too, having an impact on multiple elections in the 1890s and securing seats in the city government. As black people increased their political and financial capital, many white residents grew increasingly angry and organized to regain control of the city. It all came to a head just after the November 8th election in 1898. White Democrats in Wilmington forced the resignation of the city's white mayor and local government members of both races in a coup, as well as the removal of black employees from their municipal positions. At least 60 members of the city's black community were killed, according to the New and Observer. 
Caprici noted that white people sought to repress black people, Chinese immigrants, and others throughout the nation in the subsequent decades, sparked in part by growing competition for housing and jobs. Once upon a time in the West, there were over 200 Chinese communities until the Chinese people who lived in them were driven out. 1877, San Francisco, California. Weary of the high unemployment brought on by a depression, white Americans and recent European immigrants turned on the city's thousands of Chinese workers. On July 23, 1877, around 8,000 people gathered for a labor rally in front of City Hall. Violence broke out and the rally turned into an anti-Chinese mob that set fire to a city wharf before torching, looting, and murdering its way through the city's long-established Chinatown. 1885, Rock Springs, Wyoming. In the mid-1800s, Chinese immigrants started flowing into the U.S. in search of gold. When the gold rush ended, Chinese people found jobs throughout the country. At a coal mine in Wyoming, white Americans and European immigrants resented the Chinese laborers for accepting lower wages and lashed out. When a fight broke out between the workers on September 2, 1885, white miners gathered weapons, surrounded the Chinese enclave in Rock Springs, killed 28 Chinese men, and burned down 79 of their shacks and houses. Chinese laborers had been coming to the United States since the mid-1800s, with many fleeing the destruction caused by the Taiping Rebellion, which began in 1850. In the 1860s, the Chinese population in the U.S. nearly doubled as many came to the dangerous work of building the Pacific Coast Railroad, according to researchers for the PBS series American Experience, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Historian William Wee told CNN that Chinese laborers were paid lower wages than white Americans and European immigrants who saw the Chinese as an economic threat. Once upon a time in the West, there were over 200 Chinese communities until the Chinese who lived in them were driven out, said Wei, a University of Colorado Boulder professor and author of Asians in Colorado, a history of persecution and perseverance in the Centennial State. Wei and other Coloradans have dedicated themselves to retelling the history of Denver's Chinatown. On October 30, 1880, political organizers held an anti-Chinese parade ahead of the presidential election. The next day, a bar fight morphed into a mob that lynched a Chinese man, beat every Chinese person they happened upon, then tore down the neighborhood that had been a respite for Chinese miners in the region. Our study of similar incidents reveals that anti-Chinese fervor spread like wildfire throughout the West, moving from California to Washington to Wyoming. Anywhere Chinese people were trying to make a living, white and recent European immigrants often united united through unions, threatened and executed them, burned their encampments, and at times even packed them up on rail cars destined for ships heading back to Asia. Wei pointed out the irony when Congress used the violence as an excuse to pass the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, claiming that barring more Chinese laborers from entry would keep the peace. The Chinese built much of the infrastructure that made expansion into the West possible, enriching the pockets of the Gilded Age tycoons and enabling generations of Americans to make the western half of the U.S. their home. But the Chinese never benefited. They eventually disappeared from communities like Denver, said Wei. In our particular economic system, we tend to use up people a lot, right? Asked Wei, referring to immigrants and people of color. And once we use them, we dispose of them or we deport them, as has been the case recently. Monica Munoz Martinez is one of several historians working to bring more attention to the long history of persecution against Mexican people who, along with Native Americans, suffered as white American interests expanded west into territories they'd already been living in. The 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended the Mexican-American War also granted citizenship to Mexican residents living on newly acquired land. The treaty was also supposed to protect their property rights. Mexicans had long prospered as ranch owners in California and New 
New Mexico and Texas, but then saw their land slowly siphoned off into white hands by fraud, taxation, squatting, and sometimes outright robbery, Martinez explained. When Anglos are stealing land from Mexicans, it was perfectly legal or sanctioned by Texas law, said Martinez, an associate professor at the University of Texas in Austin. But then when Mexicans tried to take land back, they were bandits that were heavily policed and murdered by groups like the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers, immortalized later as heroes of the Wild West, were a state-sanctioned force responsible for the murder and banishment of hundreds of Mexican and Mexican-American people. The violence peaked in 1915 in La Matanza, or the massacre. Murders often took place in quiet rural areas, often with the excuse that the people the rangers killed were threatening white communities. In Presidio County in January 1918, Texas Rangers went into a Mexican community and took the owner of a ranch along with 14 other men and boys. They later executed them with no trial, suggesting the men had been involved in a raid. That summer, in response to public pressure over what was called the Poor Veneer Massacre, the state disbanded the Texas Ranger Company responsible for the ra- responsible for the murders, according to congressional testimony from Martinez. The families of the victims often fled their communities, abandoning their property in the face of the onslaught of government-sanctioned violence. Martinez noted that it took only one generation for tens of millions of acres of Mexican-owned land to shift to white hands. Entire communities of people were being effectively reduced overnight to the lower class. 1917, East St. Louis. I saw Negro women begging for mercy and pleading that they harm no one. I saw Negro women begging for mercy and pleading that they harm no one, set upon by white women of the baser sort who laughed and answered the coarse sallies of men as they beat the Negress faces and breasts with fists, stones, and sticks, wrote reporter Carlos F. Hurd. The day after watching a white mob stone and murder black people indiscriminately on the streets of East St. Louis on July 2nd, 1917. The mob killed nearly 50 people, mostly black, and drove 6,000 from the city. The mob had formed because of an earlier incident that began with a white man in a Ford who'd been shooting in the black homes. Black residents had armed themselves and fired on two men approaching in a car, killing them. These men later turned out to be police officers. 1919, Corbin, Kentucky. Known for being the birthplace of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Corbin is still grappling with his history as a sundown town. On October 30th and 31st, 1919, an armed mob forced out hundreds of black residents, bringing in extra rail cars to send them out of town. From that point on, black residents simply weren't welcome there. Corbin was one of the thousands of white-only communities throughout the U.S. that became known as a sundown town and remains predominantly white. 1923, Jonestown, Pennsylvania. In early September, after four police officers were killed during a shootout with a black man, the mayor ordered all black and Mexican people who had lived in Jonestown for less than seven years to leave the area. He relied on the local Ku Klux Klan to enforce the order, which he said wasn't directed towards Jonestown's law-abiding black population, according to the Pittsburgh Quarterly. An estimated 2,000 black and Mexican residents were forced out. Black newspapers relentlessly covered the story, drawing national attention. Though these massacres happened many decades ago, their economic impact was widespread and long-lasting, and it can still be felt today. The wealth disparity between white and black Americans is stunning. The typical non-Hispanic white family had a net worth of $188,200 in 2019, while the typical non-Hispanic black family's wealth was $24,100, according to the most recent Federal Reserve Bank data. 
This enormous gap stems in part from the historic destruction of black towns, homes, and businesses, which hampered black Americans' ability to amass financial assets, particularly housing, and to pass them down to their children and grandchildren to help build wealth. A 2013 report using research gathered on families over a 25-year period found whites were five times more likely to inherit than black people. And among those receiving inheritance, white heirs got 10 times as much. It's hard for many people to understand why the massacres continue to have economic significance today, said Chris Messer, a sociology professor at Colorado State University Pueblo. But the average American doesn't have a grandparent or great-grandparent whose home was burned to the ground and who received no insurance proceeds or government aid, he said. Black Americans who kept their cash at home, reluctant to put their money in white-owned banks, often lost their life savings and any other assets when their homes and businesses were destroyed or they had to flee to other communities, Messer said. There are plenty of really wealthy individuals in America today. They would not be wealthy if it weren't for their parents being able to give them wealth or put them in a good school or hand their businesses down, said Messer who estimated that the property lost in the Tulsa massacre would come to $200 million based on today's home values. Entire communities of people were being effectively reduced overnight to the lower class, Messer told CNN. They had to start completely over. The Tulsa riots led to a decline in home ownership, lower average occupational status, and less educational attainment among black residents of the city and throughout the state through 1940, at least, according to a research paper published last year by Nathan Nunn, a Harvard economics professor, and two other researchers. Among their findings, more black women entered the labor force, possibly because they had to go to work to support themselves and their families after the massacre. The massacre put black Americans living in Tulsa or exposed to information about the massacre on a different trajectory, none told CNN. Additional findings show that the massacre's effects on home ownership have lingered even longer. The share of black Tulsans who live in homes that either they or their families own was 25 percentage points lower in 2000 than it would have been had the massacre not occurred, none said. The gap between black and white home ownership remains wide today. About 74% of white people owned homes in the first quarter of 2021 versus 45% of black people, according to census data. Elsewhere, riots led to a greater divide between the races that further hindered black Americans from building wealth. 1919 was a particularly violent year, later known as Red Summer, with nearly a 100 lynchings and dozens of racially charged incidents. In Chicago, riots broke out in July 1919 after a black teen on a raft drifted into a swimming area unofficially restricted to whites. After he was killed, violence raged for days, which led to more formal separation between blacks and whites. Segregation in the Windy City, which is no longer sanctioned but remains pervasive, has led to a 30-year difference in life expectancy between a mostly black neighborhood and a mostly white one less than 10 miles away, according to Helene Gale, CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. It fostered discriminatory real estate practices such as redlining and contract home buying that made it more difficult for black residents to purchase property and build wealth, and it has led to lower wages for black workers. As a result of these riots, what once was an imaginary line became codified in law as it was determined that the only real way to prevent this from happening again was to segregate the races, Gale wrote in a 2019 essay marking the centennial of the riots. Though this separation is no longer mandated by our government, it continues to shape Chicago 100 years later. The solution of segregation was inspired by racism and fueled by a system of inequity that continues today. Forsyth County, Georgia is an affluent, mostly white community near Atlanta that was once home to a thriving black community until a brutal attack in 1912. 
CNN's Ryan Young went to learn more. The acts of racial violence we've described here represent only a few of the atrocities historians continue to learn about today. Anniversaries like that of Tulsa became an opportunity for entire towns to reinvestigate their pasts, and we found that individuals did a lot of this work, either professional historians or local history enthusiasts. Local media have been key in publicizing historians' work that has sparked conversations about these events. We've also seen newspapers that were able to rely on their own archives for these reinvestigations, like the Chicago Tribune. Researchers who've long studied these events are increasingly combining them in the digital projects where patterns are more visible to a broader audience. The Racial Violence Archive was created by Professor Jeff Ward at Washington University in St. Louis. He told CNN he created the archive because he saw that so many of these stories had been suppressed and the digital archive offers another way into this research and hopefully the work of reckoning. James Lowen, who wrote the bestseller Lies My Teacher Told Me before his book Sundown Towns, has long had a database where he and his small, mostly volunteer team collect submissions on towns that tried to push out people of color. He told CNN he still hears of new incidents and puts them on his site. Organizations like BlackPast.org, the Smithsonian Institution, and PBS also have put free resources online about this history. Like Forsyth, communities across the country are working with the Equal Justice Initiative and others to erect markers commemorating their violent histories, an interesting phenomenon as more and more monuments to the Confederacy come down. Finally, whenever we researched an incident for this project, we looked to see if there had been any official repayment of funds or return of property. In many cases, governments have offered official apologies or recognized the victims of racial violence, but survivors and descendants have rarely received any monetary compensation for what they suffered. That includes the 1921 Tulsa massacre for which no one has ever been held accountable and no compensation has been provided to those who survived despite ongoing efforts. As painful and painstaking as this history is, we need to take the time to learn it, to let it break our hearts, to let it fuel a righteous indignation and anger in us similar to what Jesus felt when he drove out the money changers from the temple. Understanding the severity and magnitude of this deep evil sin and wound that has been visited on people will help us be more resolute as we work empowered by the Holy Spirit to bend the arc of the moral universe more in the direction of justice. Spirit strengthen us, help us to see as you see and do as you say. Thanks again for spending some time in the breathing room, a space where people of color and faith can come together to have our lived experiences acknowledged, to witness each other's journey, and to take a collective deep breath. Be sure to subscribe to The Breathing Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. And if you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or send us an email at thebreathingroompod at gmail.com. For The Breathing Room, I'm Kevin Holland, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.